Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pop Culture Sociologist, the show where I analyze books, movies, and TV shows for your enjoyment. I'm Marina Berlin. I've been a professional media and culture critic since 2011, and today I'm going to tell you about the most interesting queer romance on TV that, if you haven't seen it already, you'll probably never watch. So, what are we talking about in this episode? I'm going to tell you about a show called Person of Interest, and specifically about two female characters on that show and their romance. Because these characters only come in in later seasons, I'm going to start from telling you about the show in general, the premise, and how everything works so that you understand the context. And then we'll talk about the story of these two characters and why I think it was pretty amazing. Of course, there will be massive spoilers for the show past this point, so please consider this your spoiler warning. All right, before we dive into describing the show, I want to pause for a moment on what I said at the beginning about how you'll probably never watch this romance that I'm about to describe to you, unless you watch the show as it aired. The reason I say this is that although I enjoyed this show and this specific pairing enormously, it ended with one of the two queer women involved dying. And not only that, but she died in the way queer women usually die on TV, which is from a bullet. I'll tell you my thoughts on that later in the episode, but I wanted to say up front that I know that many of my friends, many of you, won't want to watch a show with a queer pairing that ends that way, which I completely understand and sympathize with. Barrier gaze is a trope that describes the way media will introduce queer characters only to kill them off. And while it's currently being re-examined as more queer creators and queer characters exist in media, still, this show kills off one of its two queer women protagonists and most people who enjoy queer romances will probably not want to subject themselves to that. I don't know if I would have wanted to watch the show if I'd known this in advance. But we'll get to that later. My point is, this fact is exactly why I wanted to record an episode about this. I think Person of Interest creates really, really interesting, unusual characters and does really cool things with them. And instead of telling my friends, you should really watch this even though it ends the way it does... I can tell them, here, I recorded an episode that gives you all the best parts without you having to watch the show. And if you do want to watch some of the things I talk about, which are, for me, the highlights of the show, there will be an episode guide on my website, which you can follow and only watch what I consider to be the best parts. Person of Interest is one of those quote-unquote problematic shows that I think has a lot of great parts, but a lot of things I don't like as well. So let's dive right in. Person of Interest is a show made in the US that aired from 2011 to 2016. It's a science fiction crime procedural show, which means it has a science fictional premise, but the show itself follows a pretty standard format of solving one mystery per episode for most of its run. Most Person of Interest episodes are standalone and don't require a lot of context beyond knowing the basic premise of the show. So, what is that premise? Harold Finch is an eccentric billionaire who invented something called the machine, an AI algorithm that can predict crimes before they happen. John Reese is the ex-soldier, ex-spy 
who helps him investigate those crimes and stops them before they can happen. For the first two seasons, the show is primarily about Finch and Reese. In season two, we start to see more of the female characters this episode is about, Samin Shaw and Samantha Groves. But in order to understand who they are, what roles they play, and how their plots play out, it's important to understand the core of the show through Finch and Reese. In its early seasons, Person of Interest was about Finch and Reese catching bad guys using information they got from the machine. Finch built the machine after he was in Manhattan on 9-11. When the towers came down, I was here. I was working. Didn't even know about the attacks until that evening. You see, Mr. Reese, until that day, I had spent the better part of my life making myself very rich. Suddenly, all that money didn't seem to amount to much. Later, Finch comes to regret building the machine, or at the very least, giving it to the U.S. government. After the attacks, the government gave itself the power to read every email, listen to every cell phone. But they needed something that could sort through it all. Something that could pick the terrorists out of the general population before they could act. The public wanted to be protected. They just didn't want to know how they were being protected. So when they finally got a system that worked, they kept it secret. So how do you know about it? I built it. The machine produced two types of information. The first kind, which was relevant to national security, was passed along to the government. But the second kind was relevant to much smaller crimes, personal crimes, the kind that had only one or very few casualties. That information was originally going to be deleted, but Finch ended up creating a backdoor so that he'd receive that information. For various reasons, he can't involve the government in solving these smaller crimes. And so, this is the basic premise of the show. Finch has money and tech skills. He's a reclusive billionaire who drinks green tea and works in a library. He has a disability, which makes walking more difficult. He refuses to ever carry or learn how to shoot a gun. But he has these numbers coming in, and he needs someone who can act on them prevent crimes, and save people. That person is Reese, who is an ex-Special Forces soldier and an ex-CIA agent who actually used to be part of the department that handled leads from the machine without knowing it, of course. Reese is a homeless veteran when Finch finds him, whose trauma, both from his career and from his personal life, has made him, by his own admission, suicidal. Finch and Reese team up and solve cases, where they have a number given to them by the machine, and they have to figure out whether the person involved is a victim or a perpetrator and stop the would-be crime before it happens. I'm personally not a big fan of episodic mystery-solving shows, but Person of Interest worked for me much better than most shows in that genre. I liked that the episodic plots were about subverting the expectations of a stereotypical viewer who roughly fit Finch and Reese's own profiles, meaning a straight white man over the age of 40. As an example, there's an episode where Finch and Reese get the social security number of a woman and find out that she has an ex-boyfriend who occasionally follows her around without her knowing it. Reese says, 
Well, he's just following her around. That's not a violent crime, surely. It must be someone else in her life who'll try to kill or harm her. But Finch corrects him. Over 75% of women murdered by a partner are stalked before they're murdered. So there's a very good chance this is in fact the relevant perpetrator. This in itself is a really interesting attitude. Having these two men talk about aspects of rape culture, of violence against women, that may not be immediately visible to them. I found that a lot of the episodes were like that, focusing on incorrect assumptions Reese and Finch had about the experiences of various marginalized people. This is not to say that the show was perfect, of course, when it came to the portrayal of marginalized characters or communities. As one example, it had Taraji P. Henson as a lead for a while, and absolutely wasted her as a character, and then killed her. The only upside one can find in that is that Hansen went on immediately afterwards to get a role on Empire that became iconic. But honestly, I'm still angry about how her character was treated on Person of Interest. Anyway, let's get back to the things I did like and that you're listening to this episode for, which is Root and Shaw. So, let's talk about our first female protagonist, Samin Shaw. We first meet her in episode 16 of season 2, an episode written entirely from Shaw's point of view, even though the audience has never met her before at this point. The episode is so good and so completely standalone that you can easily watch it just to get a sense of who Shaw is, and you don't need to know anything about the show to enjoy it. We're first introduced to Shaw as an ex-soldier and current spy, someone who works for the same unit Reese did, acting on intelligence the government gets from the machine. But unlike Reese, Shaw, played by Sarah Shahi, is of Iranian heritage and joined the military after a failed career in medicine. This is where we get into what, to me, is the most interesting aspect of Shaw's character. She doesn't experience emotions or attachment the way most people do. The show describes this as an Axis II personality disorder, which is a very, very broad category of things. The show also calls Shaw a sociopath at times, but the bottom line is Shaw is someone who has enormous difficulty identifying with other people, feeling compassion, or even having any emotional reactions to anything at all. We see this in a flashback to when Shaw was a little girl, and her father died in a car accident with her in the car. At that time, she struggles to have any particularly emotional reaction to his death. She's sad he died, but she's not crying or hysterical. She just feels mostly blank. To herself, that's her first sign that she's profoundly different than most people. And the beginning of her understanding that other people will see her as wrong or inhuman for this. When she grows up, Shaw goes into medicine. Despite not having an emotional connection to people... Shaw still has a very distinct and logical moral compass. She wants to help people, save people, because that's a positive thing to do in the world, and she wants to be part of that. Shaw excels at medical school. She's very smart and determined and hardworking, and then during her residency to become a surgeon, she's actually taken aside by the head doctor and told she won't be a good fit for the program and needs to quit. She protests, of course, since she's a very good surgeon, and it's a profession where her shallow effect is actually an advantage. She doesn't get attached to patients, doesn't get emotional about her decisions, 
but the other doctor claims he personally doesn't think someone who doesn't care in the slightest about whether her patient lives or dies, who doesn't have a fundamental emotional sympathy towards other people, as he's noticed Shaw doesn't have, can be a good surgeon. It's too weird, too dangerous, he won't sign off on someone with her disorder operating on people. So Shaw leaves the medical field. It's interesting that she doesn't tell people the details of how and why she left later on in life. She actually only tells them she was in med school, not mentioning that she graduated and then went on to do her residency. So instead, Shaw becomes a soldier, going into a profession where she believes she'll be able to help people, but where caring profoundly about people who are not her teammates will not be required. Shaw is a very good soldier, and later a very good agent. In fact, we see Reese go through a very similar arc as Shaw does, but where Reese ends up quitting the profession and eventually ends up homeless and suicidal, Shaw copes with the same hardships much better. Eventually, Shaw becomes closer to Finch and Reese, and goes from being an occasional guest star to a permanent part of the team. Again, if you'd like a viewing guide of her episodes, there's one up on my website. I'm not qualified to say whether Shaw is a good representation of personality disorders, but I think in a way her portrayal is more in dialogue with the trope we've all seen many times over on TV and in other mediums of the quote-unquote sociopath or psychopath who can't feel empathy or identify with others. Traditionally, those sorts of characters are villains. More recently, in shows like Dexter or the BBC's Sherlock Holmes adaptation, they can be anti-heroes or even heroes, but usually only when they're played by white men. I've never seen a woman of Iranian descent portrayed as an unequivocal hero, despite having absolutely no ability to emotionally connect with anyone, to feel compassion, to understand morality as anything but a cold, logical calculation of what will work better for the world. All right, now let's talk about the second half of this equation, and to quote one of my good friends, the woman who made many straight women slightly less straight, Samantha Groves, or as she prefers to be known, Root, as in Root Access, a computer programming term. Unlike Shaw, Root starts out as a villain. She first appears in the first season as a brilliant hacker and an antagonist that Reese and Finch have to defeat. They do so, but barely, and Root takes notice of them. Finch and Reese's identities technically don't exist, but Root starts digging, and eventually, because she's brilliant, figures out who Finch is and that he must have built some kind of amazing AI that Root wants to have access to as well. In order to accomplish this, in the second season, she infiltrates Finch and Reese's lives and eventually kidnaps Finch and uses him to get to the machine. In the culmination of that storyline, Samin Shaw shoots Root in the shoulder, but after that, the team saves Root rather than leaving her to die, and Finch places a very distraught and dazed Root in a mental hospital. He thinks this will help contain Root, but it's much too late for that, because by this point, Root has established a relationship with the machine, and the machine now talks directly to Root in a way it never talked to Finch. Root becomes, in essence, the machine's voice. The show calls Root 
the machine's analog interface, while Finch is the machine's admin. Root essentially considers the machine a kind of god, referring to the machine with she and her pronouns. Which, to be fair, is not unreasonable. The machine is, in fact, indistinguishable from an all-knowing deity. As time goes by, the show leans heavier and heavier into the idea that the machine's relationship with Root is similar to the relationship between God and a biblical prophet. In the Bible, God speaks through a prophet to affect things in the world. In the show, the machine speaks to Root in partial messages, signs and wonders, to use a biblical phrase. Sometimes God gives Root orders she doesn't understand or that go against Root's wishes, and sometimes, rarely, she even disobeys God, though we'll get to that later. Fascinatingly, Root's strongest and most important relationship on the show always is her relationship with God, who just happens to be an all-knowing AI. Finch, who actually created this AI, looks at all of this with barely disguised horror. He desperately wants Root to be wrong, to be delusional, but she isn't. The machine does use her and speak to her like she does with no one else. But if that didn't sound like an interesting enough character, let's talk about Root's origin story. When we meet her, she's a hacker and an assassin for hire. She doesn't have Shaw or Reese's training, but she's very handy with a gun. She's a good actress and essentially an entire spy agency in one person. But how did Root get started on this path? When the team tries to find a way to defeat her, they dig through her past trying to find anything to use against her, or even explain to them who she is and what her deal is. They find she's from a small town in Texas, where there's an old story about a girl Root's age who disappeared one day, never to be heard from again. Of course, the team assumes that this was Root herself, who must have wiped her own identity when she was a teenager and run away for whatever reason. But in fact, Root, then still Samantha, was the disappeared girl's best friend. They went to school together in the 80s, when Root was a solitary child obsessed with computers. One day, Root's best friend disappeared. Root knew what had happened to her. She saw the girl get into an older man's car, and she knew the man must have done something very bad to her, probably killed her and hid the body. As a child, Root couldn't solve the case herself, so she told authority figures. She told someone at the school, she tried to tell the police, but no one wanted to take her seriously, and everyone wanted to protect that nice man who'd clearly done nothing wrong. That is Root's origin story. That incident proved to her that for some crimes and for some perpetrators, the law was never going to give victims justice. She realized that the lives of little girls were forfeit in this system that prioritized the words of grown men. So, Root made it her mission to destroy this man in any way she could. She became a good enough hacker that she managed to orchestrate his death, and from there she just kept going. Money came easily to her, and she didn't have to feel powerless ever again. I think it's fascinating that Root's origin story is essentially being radicalized by rape culture and misogyny, and that none of that turns her into a villain, ultimately. I mean, she's an adversary, and she definitely murders people, dispensing her own brand of vigilante justice, but so do Reese and Shaw. 
in their lives before meeting Finch. The difference is they do it on the orders of a government organization that got a tip from an AI about a crime that probably will happen, and Root does it when she knows or thinks someone has done wrong because she doesn't believe the legal system is good at arbitrating who is and isn't a criminal. The only difference between Root and Finch's team when they encounter each other is that Root doesn't have an all-knowing AI to tell her which person is guilty and which isn't, so she has to follow her own instincts and her own information. But once she finds out the machine exists, she gladly exchanges her own ideas of who is and isn't guilty for information from this powerful AI. All right, now let's talk about Root and Shaw together. I hope it's clear by now why I think both of these characters are enormously cool and interesting, and why the idea of a romance between the two of them is just beyond amazing, and something I and many fans of the show were so into. Root starts hitting on Shaw basically from the moment they meet, specifically from the time when they're still at odds and Root manages to knock out Shaw and tie her to a chair to begin torturing her. I read your file, and I'm kind of a big fan, so I really don't want to hurt you. So you're going to tell me the name of his contact? One of the things I left out of my file... I kind of enjoy this sort of thing. I am so glad you said that. I do too. Like you just heard in the clip, Root and Shaw both flirt while attacking each other and threatening each other with violence. This coy relationship continues while each of them is kind of a guest on the team. Shaw shows up sometimes, Root shows up sometimes. Eventually, there's one particular episode where Shaw yet again wakes up from being knocked out to realize Root has kidnapped her and tied her hands with zip ties to the wheel of a car. Root apologizes, says she was acting on orders from the machine, and unties Shaw, who, of course, immediately pulls a knife on her. They go on an adventure together, because God told them so, essentially. Root, of course continues to flirt with Shaw the entire time, and Shaw acts somewhere between awkward and angry that any of this is happening to her. I think it's interesting to note that while Root deliberately takes on the more aggressive role in pursuing Shaw, and while Root is always very sarcastic and exaggerated in doing it, Root is also very genuine in accepting Shaw and the way she works. She acknowledges and accepts that Shaw can't really form emotional attachments like most people, that she doesn't see other people the way Root does, and Root affirms that she's fine with it. She loves Shaw as she is. She doesn't want to change her. They're both weirdos, and they can be weirdos together. It's also interesting to point out, I think, that Root and Shaw function as sort of deviant versions of Finch and Reese. Finch is a computer genius who lives a reclusive life, doesn't trust anyone, is a control freak, keeps everything about his identity a secret. But next to Root, he appears practically quote-unquote normal. At least he's not out here killing people in the name of vigilante justice. At least he's a calm, rational person who doesn't make money from taking contracts and being a hired killer. In the same way, Reese can barely function in society as he used to, when he meets Finch. He has enormous amounts of trauma, he's been severely depressed, 
and he finds it difficult to connect with people, to act emotionally, to form lasting romantic relationships, which are all things he used to be able to do. He's extremely reserved and not a very good actor unless Finch is guiding him through it. In the same way, Shaw is an even more extreme version of Reese, in that she doesn't process attachments and emotions the way most people do, and she's even farther from society's ideal of who she should be. At least with Reese, his stoic behavior isn't too far off from his assigned gender role, but with Shaw, the show loves pointing out that she finds it strange and preposterous to function in spaces of traditional femininity, because everything about her runs counter to those norms. So Root is an exaggeration of Finch, and Shaw is an exaggeration of Reese. and while Finch and Reese live in an extremely emotionally intimate relationship, they are still canonically two straight men. Root and Shaw, on the other hand, have a romantic relationship that's, again, a kind of quote-unquote exaggeration or amplification of what Reese and Finch have. So, to get back to our story, Root and Shaw flirt on and off, with Shaw's objections going from, I wouldn't touch you with a ten-foot pole, to, we can't be together, Root, because we'd feed off each other and it would be a disaster. We're so good at this together. You're gonna realize that someday. Root, no offense. You're hot. You're good with a gun. Those are two qualities I greatly admire. But you and me together would be like a four-alarm fire in an oil refinery. Until finally, there's a mission in season three where the team is fairly certain they have no way out. They've fallen for a trap set by a rival evil AI. Thankfully, Shaw shows up at the last minute and saves them. But to truly save them, Shaw has to sacrifice herself. Before she does this, she decides to tell Root that she's over her objections. They share a kiss, and Shaw throws herself to the wolves and pushes Root away into safety. While the show was airing, there was some tension about this. Behind the scenes, this was a season when Sarah Shahi, the actress who plays Shaw, was pregnant and asked for time off, and this was the show's way of accommodating that by letting her not be in episodes for a while. But I think watching it now, since we don't see Shaw's body, and when we leave her, she isn't mortally injured, I think if I was watching the show today, I would not be questioning whether Shaw is dead or alive. It would be fairly clear that by the rules of the genre, she is still alive. But of course, none of that matters to Root. Root assumes that the machine is going to throw all of her efforts into finding Shaw. Similarly, the characters on the show... Reese and Finch and Root are all questioning whether Shaw is alive or dead, with each of them having a different opinion of things. For Root, this is the biggest crisis of faith she's ever had. She believes that Shaw has to be alive, of course, and she assumes that the machine is going to throw all of her efforts into finding Shaw. But Instead, the machine keeps sending Root on unrelated missions that advance the cause of fighting the rival evil AI, but don't bring any new leads about Shaw. Eventually, Root demands answers of her god. She begs the machine to help her. Instead, the machine sends her a message. Stop looking for Shaw. Let it go. Root is devastated, but 
God's word is not to be argued with. Root can't accept that she's supposed to just let Shaw go. So she leaves the team and takes a long while to come back fully. And each time we see her after this, she's severely affected, not only by Shaw's absence, but also by the fact that Finch believes that Shaw is probably dead, and by the fact that the machine has given up on searching for her. The peak of this comes at the end of the fourth season, when Root actively threatens the machine itself, saying that she is going to walk on a narrow ledge on the roof of a tall building with her eyes closed until the machine agrees to pause everything and actively look for Shaw. Even though looking for Shaw may not be part of the grand plan or even the best thing for humanity as a whole. There's an anecdote that happens with Root during this time that I think is really indicative of her as a character and is also just a really cool role reversal that the show does. There's an episode in which Finch begins dating a woman he'd recently met. Root shows up out of nowhere just as this woman's number comes up as a potential victim. And Finch and Root together try to figure out who it is that's trying to harm Finch's date. They find out that her ex-husband is trying to get her back, and think that maybe he's the one who's trying to harm her in some way. But eventually they neutralize him as a threat, and assume that the woman is safe now. Finch and Root say their goodbyes, but on a hunch, Finch decides to follow up on Root and see where she goes after they part ways which is how Finch ends up going into the hotel room of his date and discovering Root trying to inject poison into this woman's water bottle. It turns out that Finch is only dating this woman as a way to do some sophisticated ploy to harm the rival evil AI, and Root has figured this out. She's also figured out that whether Finch is successful or unsuccessful in his ploy, simply trying what he's going to try will reveal his identity to the evil AI and it will 100% lead to his death. And so Root decides to take that path of action away from him by killing this woman. Finch asks Root whether the machine told Root to do this because the machine would never consider one person's life more worthy than the life of someone else. It would never prioritize Finch's survival over the survival of this random woman. And Root admits that, in fact, the machine told her not to do what she's doing. But Root disobeyed the machine, who, at this point, for Root, is still essentially her god, because she cannot handle losing another team member. She's so heartbroken and devastated over Shaw, and over doing the machine's bidding, in no longer actively searching for Shaw, that adding Finch's death to the tally is just too much. She just can't do it, even if God has ordered her to. I really like the scene that follows this, because Finch, in fact, has no way of stopping Root. He's much weaker than her physically, he's not trained in any kind of martial art, he doesn't have a weapon, and also doesn't know how to use weapons, and Root has all of that background and all of that training. Root, in that moment, also can't really be reasoned with. Her entire life's philosophy is based on the idea that she will make the call on whether someone deserves to die for some greater good or some crime that the legal system was unable to prove, and that her own judgment is good enough. 
there's no way that Finch can make her feel sorry for this specific woman or reason with her or explain that this is not morally acceptable. In fact, Root is so considerate and so kind towards Finch that anticipating this eventuality of him discovering her, she brought a sedative, which she will inject into Finch to keep him from seeing any of this. She wants to spare him. And again, he has no physical ability to resist her. So what Finch does is take the bottle of poison that Root has brought with her, from which she's going to inject the poison into this woman's water bottle, and he ingests that poison. In that moment, the only power Finch has is taking his own life. That's the only thing in this situation that Root cares about, and so that's what he threatens. He tells her that he will refuse to go to the hospital or take an antidote unless she promises to leave this woman alone. And if she doesn't, then he'll die, and the problem will be solved. This woman will be safe because there will be no point in killing her. The reason I really like this is that it's very, very rare to see a confrontation between a man and a woman in which the man has no way of forcing his will except to harm himself. That's really a trope we usually only see women partake in. I can think of so many stories I've read, especially as a child, in which a woman is trapped with a much more powerful, dangerous man, and the only power she has at her disposal is the ability to threaten her own life. But I don't think I've ever seen the reverse of that, except in this scene in Person of Interest. So getting back to poor Shaw, who kissed her girlfriend and then sacrificed herself for the team, we eventually get her point of view as well on everything that's going on. She's being tortured by agents of the evil AI, but because she's not the sort of person to break under torture because of all of her training, and because of how willing she is to die for the cause, they use a different tactic on her. They put simulations in her head that make her think she's escaped the facility where they're keeping her and has met up with her team again. They hope this way Shaw will lead them to crucial information about the machine so that the evil AI can defeat it. In each simulation, Shaw reunites with her team, but eventually senses that something around her isn't quite right, and so, in every simulation, she eventually starts killing off her teammates. She shoots Reese, she shoots Finch, but then she has to kill Root. 7,000 simulations. I killed a lot of people. But the one person that I couldn't kill was you. So I killed myself over and over again. She tells the fictional Root, you are my safe space, the place I returned to when I was being tortured. I would rather kill myself than kill you. Each time, Shaw kills herself, wakes up, and the simulation starts again. Eventually, finally, Shaw and Root are reunited. Shaw manages to escape, and the team faces down the evil AI. As we've established, Root's primary relationship on the show is with the machine, who she sees as a god. So, in a way, I find it thematically appropriate that she dies while on the run with Finch, because the machine ran the calculations and Root's life was expendable in that moment. So, Root takes a bullet that's intended for Finch. 
There, now you know about the worst part of this arc. Of course, afterwards, Shaw tracks down the man who shot Root and kills him, and, in a show of uncharacteristic sentimentality, visits Root's grave. Shaw also has an interesting way of dealing with her grief over Root because, as we've covered, Shaw doesn't really feel emotions the way most people do. But in this specific case, she does feel something, and it's complicated and makes her angry, and she processes it over the span of a few episodes. The show also tries to imply that while the machine lives, which it does in the end of the show, Root will never be truly dead. And the machine, in fact, takes on Root's voice and starts speaking directly to us, the viewers. And although Finch survives, Reese also dies, sacrificing himself, much like Root did, for Finch and for the cause. But none of that makes it any better. Thinking about the show now, it's so infuriating that Root and Shaw never really have a lot of time together that isn't a simulation or a fantasy. In the episode where they finally admit their love to each other, Shaw is kidnapped and they're separated for a long time. Then there's the episode where they're reunited, and in the very next episode, Root dies. I understand that Person of Interest is a procedural and a crime show, and it doesn't really do relationship drama except in little bits here and there. It's not like we get long scenes of any of the other characters just living their lives with their significant others. But still, Root and Shaw's romance deserved so much better. They were two glorious, amazing characters apart and together. And then the show went and killed one of them. They were interesting. They were unusual for female characters on TV. They were layered and complicated. And while I really enjoyed most of what the show did with them, they deserved to be on screen much, much more than they were. So maybe now you can understand why recommending the show to people who would enjoy Shaw and Root is always complicated for me. I can't in good conscience say, here's a great relationship between these two queer women. I hope you enjoy it without giving a whole bunch of disclaimers. But at the same time, I think seeing characters like Root and Shaw and the narrative they inhabited broadened my ideas of what could be done with female characters on TV. I think seeing different stories gives us ideas about our own work and also trains us as viewers to want and seek out and demand different stories, which is really why I recorded this episode. Because whether you watch the show or not, now you know about these two characters. You know about their romance, you know about their arc, and I hope your life is a little richer for that. I hope you enjoyed hearing about these characters, even if you won't enjoy actually watching them. So, in conclusion, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thank you for giving me a chance to talk to you about Person of Interest for as long as I have. I always love talking to people about this show, so you've really done me a favor here. And as usual, if you enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends. A huge, huge thank you to everyone who supports me on Patreon and makes pop culture sociologist possible. While the podcast will always be available for free for everyone to listen to, patrons get cool perks like knowing what the topic of the next episode is going to be before anyone else, submitting questions for a special Q&A episode, early access to bonus material, and more. There will be a new episode of Pop Culture Sociologist once a month until August, 
So if you do decide to support me on Patreon, please know you'll only be charged for months when there's a new episode out. You can subscribe to Pop Culture Sociologist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every other platform. And if you want to talk to me about the episode, I'm on Twitter at Berlin underscore Marina or Pop Sock Podcast. In addition to being a media critic, I'm also a published author and poet of science fiction and fantasy. So if you're interested in that, you can read about it on my website, marinaberlin.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Marina Berlin, and I'll see you on the next episode of Pop Culture Sociologist.